Welcome to the Giants Huddle. Get him in the huddle. Get him in the huddle. Get him in the huddle. A New York Giants podcast. Welcome to episode three of the Giants Huddle. My name is John Schmelk. It's your brand new Giants podcast. We've already heard from Peter Schrager and former Giants wide receiver and Ring of Honor member Amani Toomer. This week, we're talking to former Giants linebacker and current color analyst on the radio. That is... The one and only Carl Banks. Carl, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Welcome and thank you for having me on the podcast. This is awesome. It is, and, and we're happy to have you with us. It's kind of a trying to take a different look at, at former and current Giants on and off the field and try to get their perspective on things. We don't really have a chance to talk about when we're doing our normal programming around games and breaking sure. down players and, and things like that. So why don't we start here, Carl, because we're right, we're right in the middle of draft season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, t- people are getting ready to figure out who everyone's going to select, and players are going through the final set of pro days around the league getting ready to come in. When you were... Coming from Michigan State to the NFL, how and you laugh at already? How much different was the process then than what these guys are dealing with now from combine to pro day, senior bowl, all that stuff? Carl, who? Uh, that's pretty much like I watched the draft. I didn't watch the draft. I listened to it in my coach's office. Um, you know, this is the number three pick in the draft. Actually, the first guy taken on draft day, and I don't even know if they had uh, New York City where the, the draftees or prospective first-rounders would be in. What do you mean the first guy picked on draft day? Had they announced who the f- other picks were going to be already? Yeah, uh, Dean Steinkuhler and Urban Fryer. They signed early or whatever. So the first guy off the board on draft day was me. The first name called anyway. I sat in my coach's office and we watched it and listened to it. And um, I got a call from Bill Parcell. So now it is quite a, and, and I think it's a good thing too, quite a show. It's it's a show. You get the players, they get to come in. And I think they probably took a page from the Heisman um, ceremonies because you know, you get the guys in, their families are in for the Heisman Trophy deal, and it became such a thing, and it became a Heisman show. <clears throat> now the draft is prime time, you know? Do you, do you remember what the conversation with Parcells was like? Yeah, it was probably 10 words. <laughs> he said, hey, I drafted you. Congratulations. I didn't draft you to sit you on the bench. See you soon. Did you talk to the defensive coordinator or anything like that? Nothing until I got into um, the Meadowlands, I guess, right after the draft. Now, heading up to the draft, did you have any idea that the Giants were going to pick you? What was your experience with them like at your pro day, at the combine, and things like that? Um, I had no idea. Um, I actually didn't know I was going to be drafted that high, to be honest with you. Um, that was kind of the year of the linebacker, and when you picked up all the publications – you'd see a lot of names ahead of mine, you know, and I was at the time Michigan State was a horrible football program. And, um, you know, even though I was three years in a row, all Big Ten and all America, it just wasn't, I wasn't a name that was up there with the Ricky Hunleys, Jackie Ship. So you had Oklahoma, Arizona, Florida, Wilbur Marshall. You had a lot of big names coming out. And then there was me. And um, I had no idea. I had no interaction. Um, 
with Bill Parcells at the Senior Bowl. In fact, Parcells tells the story that he intentionally ignored me or when he watched me (laughs) in drills, he did it from afar because, you know, a few years earlier, he had Lawrence Taylor. So he knew that if he showed enough attention, other teams would be um, would be interested. Uh, but the the person who actually, I think, really got my draft stock to rise was Gil Brandt. And Gil, actually, Gil wanted to um, wanted to draft me. He says, but uh, Gil, they had these more complex drills for. Um, mental and physical type of stuff. It was similar to the game Simon. Do you know, are you old enough to know the game Simon, know Simon with the yeah. lights, mm-hmm. the random sure. lights and stuff? Um, they took me through that and I aced it. He said, no one has done it better than me. I think still to this day. Um, I was darn near perfect on it. Um, and I guess that test recall, right? In terms yeah. of you know watching film and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and if you talk to Gil, he'll tell you about it. He still talks about it. And then just the physical stuff, but he thought that um, I would fall down to them, and um, but he ended up with Lockhart, Eugene Lockhart that year, um, and Steve Diossi. So I was happy when I heard that I was drafted by the Giants, and then I find out, because I didn't know anything about the Giants, um, I found out that they have four all-pro linebackers, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then that's when it uh, it got real, you know. Um, I came in my first day in. I see Harry. I see Lawrence, and uh, I introduce myself to them. And Harry looks at me and says, "So what the hell are you gonna do to get on the field?" So I was like, "Wow, it really got real." And so um, during the first practice, I kind of saw why because they they practiced at a different level. I mean. Watching Lawrence in practice, man, he practiced faster and harder than any game I'd played in college. So I kind of knew I had to earn my spot, but I was up for it. And um, the rest kind of took care of itself. What was the biggest transition for you from from going from a college linebacker to the pros? And how did guys like LT and Harry and your coaches, who are also great Hall of Fame level coaches, help you along? I think I just had to adjust to the speed of the game. You know, I brought a skill set that was conducive to what they were looking for um, in a highly rated defense. Belichick was such a great teacher. Our entire coaching staff, like Romeo Cornell, great teacher. Everything was being taught, um, more so than coached. And um, I just I just felt that, you know, as time went on, my opportunity would come. I was probably angry that I wasn't playing earlier. So I took it out on people on special teams. Legit. Like, that's that's just kind of the way it, I'm wired. Like, if I felt like I could play and I still wasn't getting the opportunity, I was going to show through some opportunity that I was getting that I should be on the field. So I knew um, if I'm going to play special teams, I'm making everybody pay until they take notice. Um, it happened to me. Uh, similarly, in college, my freshman year, when I knew I was good enough to be on varsity, and they moved me up 
just to move me back down, we were uh, scrimmaging, I believe, Notre Dame. So they told me that I wouldn't, wasn't going to play in that scrimmage with the varsity, but I had to play JV. So I was pissed because I never really even talked to anybody about being JV player. So I went and played the JV game, and I kicked ass, and I was angry. And then they wanted me to play on special teams for the varsity game, too. So I did it. Um, But, you know, just wanting an opportunity to really play. Once you know you're good enough to do it, it's about, you know, just screaming to make sure you get the attention of people. And when I say screaming, it's not a verbal thing, but just about how you play, you know, just making sure you show up on the radar screen. And I think once I did, my attitude and my approach to the game kind of helped me ascend to a place of leadership and give us kind of a tough personality. And I think that kind of speaks to the culture that Bill Parcells and Belichick had here, right? They didn't want guys that would verbally complain and sulk about not getting playing time. They wanted guys that would go out there and play harder to to play more. And I think this kind of brings us to the modern Giants a little bit too Mm -hmm. far, right? Where Pat Shermer and Dave Gettleman are trying to establish the right culture with the right type of guys in the locker room. As a player, a lot of the analytical people pish posh culture, this culture, that, whatever, it doesn't matter. For a player, especially a guy who came into a a locker room that's already kind of established with stars, how important is a culture in the locker room to help a team win and translate to the field? It's, it's, It's vital. I can tell you why, because culture goes both ways. When you've got a bad one, players come in and assimilate right away. And they just contribute, no matter how good they are, they contribute to the demise or the continued um, mediocrity of a team. Or if you have a culture that you're putting in place that's going to be very demanding and hold people accountable then people will have to step up. So culture is very important. You know, and the interesting thing about analytics, which I'm not a um, opponent of analytics because analytics has been a part of football strategy since Vince Lombardi. Sure. It's just now being packaged and sold for public consumption. You know, um, but the thing about analytics, and they'll tell you, once chaos is introduced, there's no predictability. Well, once once you increase the variables, the yeah. analytics fall apart. It, fall, it has to because they, they base it on predictives. So um, culture is important because your best player may not be at his best if he's in a culture that doesn't demand it or if he's not a self-starter. Things that uh, the analytics can't tell you. Now, if you can put a psychoanalyst in there with the analytics, then maybe. But um, human behavior is is hard to predict sometimes when the variables change. Now, you were fortunate enough to be a part of a lot more good teams than bad in your time in the NFL with the Giants. Yes. Could you tell, based on what the locker room was like and how the culture was like sometimes, how the season was going to go? Yeah. Well, yes. Um, Because... To be part of the beginning of the culture change. Now, keep in mind, it was 3-12-1 my rookie season. Right. 
So I was part of the change that was ushered in. And so once we got the right group, we got the right attitude, there was going to always be a high level of the, of uh, accountability. And Parcel said it from the day he made himself vulnerable when he said that, you know, he kind of coined the phrase, you know, Parcel's guys are my guys. You know, when he says, I'm going to get rid of a lot of people, they're going to be some of your friends and some very popular folks here. But I need a promise um, from you guys that if I give you my all, you'll give me your all and, and you'll be my guys. And we all bought in. And from that minute on, he could coach us the way he wanted to coach us. And um, we played hard for him. And it was a great relationship. But from that moment in 84, we were a wild card team. The standard was pretty much set. We weren't looking to go backwards. So every time we lost, we looked to get better. We were angry that we lost. Um, And if we were outplayed, we had to figure out a way to be better than the uh, the next opponent, and that came to fruition in '86, right? Where the, the yeah, the years well, '85 too. Yeah, I mean, look, sure. we we went from wild card to NFC championship, uh, and that was the one that was kind of the wake up call. We were pretty good, and we went to Chicago, um, and we saw that there was another level we could take it, especially defensively, um, and we did. And we sustained it, but we were on a growth pattern. We we were on kind of a uh, ascending chart in terms of growth and in terms of what we could be, and we just continued to grow until we became, in my opinion, the most dominant uh, defense in football. You destroyed the Niners in the playoffs that year. Mm-hmm. You shut out the Redskins. What was it about the defense, and what was that next level that you did reach after you saw what the Bears did at 85? It was kind of an unspoken. Uh, we just knew there was more we could do. Um, when you thought you were as, as good as they got, you could see that there was more required. And so we did whatever it took, um, and maybe it was just mental for us. Um, but we just we were that type of team we wanted to be not good or as good we wanted to be the best and um it was every man you know just did whatever he needed to do to be the best he could be you talked about belichick being such a great teacher uh Uh, you were with him in cleveland too after Mm -hmm. your giants days and you've seen obviously the success he's had in new england did he do the type of stuff when he was your defensive coordinator where he basically wouldn't have almost like a defensive system and would just customize his game plan each week to the opponent? Did he do that with you guys back in the 80s, or is that something that he kind of built up to over his years in the league? No. Um, Bill Bill Belichick has a defensive system. They practice something. He's he's never a coach without a plan, so just be clear. Um, but he's he evolves his plan. He puts, he puts a foundation in place, whether it's cover two, whether it's man. He knows what he's going to be from year to year. And then he puts in pieces that will constantly adjust as uh, a game goes on or as a season goes on. But he has to teach a fundamental starting in his OTAs. Whatever they've evaluated after the Super Bowl and they look at where teams are and where the best teams are, um, 
then he puts in a defensive scheme that works. And then there are so many offshoots of that based on his personnel. So it may look like he's constantly evolving something, but there's something constant about that. It's going to be you're going to play a certain technique or when you see them check to a coverage, they got a base coverage. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what he's been teaching from the day they walk in in OTAs when they get up on the board and start writing it up. They don't um, they don't enter a game without a plan. They don't say, okay, we're going to re- react to whatever they do. Um, just like in the Super Bowl. Uh, they had, they played cover two quite a bit. And Jared Goff didn't realize it because they shifted so late. And that was kind of part of his plan. They were showing something, and because McVay is in his ear up until the last 15 seconds, right? and I'm sure the Patriots were smart enough to wait until that radio cuts off, and then they shift into their defense. But um, they played a lot of cover, too, because um, the Rams kept their receivers in close. You know, um, they did a lot. They did a lot to disguise, but they they pretty much had a base coverage. Does it take a special type of player and uh, the intelligence of certain players to be able to, to get coached by Belichick that way, where no. you can make those types of adjustments? No, it just takes a, it. You do have to have a level of intelligence, right? But you just got to understand football, John, because he teaches it. It's like everything has a base. Everything has a base foundation. So in there's no group of individuals within. Everything works for the greater good of of the 11 guys out there. And there's very few times where more than one player gets exposed on the play if everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. Um so you have to be a special kind of player willing to learn, mm-hmm. um, committed to fundamentals. Now, if you're committed to your the things they teach you, um, you're going to be fine. You'll, you'll make any adjustment. As a matter of fact, you'll be making suggestions for adjustments. But if you don't commit yourself to that, you could struggle. You could struggle because it's a lot of information, uh, but they start off with a base, and then the information gets added as kind of outgrowths of whatever competition does or whatever you want to show another team. And we'll, and we'll circle back to, to, to the 80s and the rest of your Giants career, but I think this leads to a, a more general point. I love watching you interact with Seth Joyner on Twitter, and you guys mm. talk about some of the frustrating lack of defensive fundamentals, the type of things you were sure. just talking about in the league now. Why do you think when you watch, and maybe be a little more specific, what are some of the things that you see on the field in the modern NFL? And this is not the Giants. This is the whole league now overall. That frustrates you, and you just don't understand why players aren't doing things the right way on defense. Well, because they're not taught the right way. Um, You can see teams play cover two, and they'll put a corner in the press, and the corner never puts his hands on a wide receiver. It just shows it, you know. Um, Or it doesn't know how to position – himself in zone defense, you know, into throwing windows. And it just becomes very frustrating when you have been a part of football 
where fundamentals were the tenets of success. If you could do a lot of things right, you had more options off of it. But now, you know, guys that'll call themselves shut down corners or this, that, it's just guys that run fast. <laughs> you know, um, there are a few that are committed to fundamentals. When Richard Sherman uh, played at his best prior to in- injury, he was pretty good. Um, he struggled, though, when it wasn't zone defense. You know what I mean? So I don't know if from year to year he committed himself to get better as a man-to-man cover guy. He could play zone like nobody's business. He could make zone feel like man. But I don't know if he made man feel like the same guy who was who was physical with you in zone defense. So, um, But those are things that have to be taught to um, to players. And, you know, again, it depends on how you start your offseason. The way good teams start their offseason, it starts with the fundamentals. It's not about installation. You know, um, I call them trays. It's like, you know, short order cooks that's got to reheat meatballs or something. They just throw the trays in there and start putting up the plays. But I think it all starts with um, the basic fundamentals of football. And I think that's why certain teams are really good um, when they hit the football field during the regular season because – it's not, okay, let me give these guys my game plan. It's, okay, let's talk about if we're going to play a lot of cover two, let's talk about what's important to cover two, why reroutes are important, you know what I mean, um, why we can't let teams threaten the seams when we're in this. This is who we have to be this year. So the first thing I'm going to do is show you the areas that are threats. And then I'm going to go to the red zone. And I'm going to tell you the four areas, <clears throat> no matter what we play, where the ball is going to be thrown. It's going to be thrown at the pylons. It's going to be thrown at the crossbar and just inside the numbers. These are the areas we've got. Whatever we defend, we're going to defend the back pylon. We're going to defend the area right inside the numbers and the crossbar. So if anything's going to the back of the end zone, is going to be thrown at the crossbar. It won't be thrown low. And you can see it over and over again. But that's how you start your your season. You talk about the thing. So you know what you're going to be. And then you say, okay, here's how we have to defend it. It makes no sense to me, and this is not a knock, but how a team can go into every season and allow tight ends to threaten them, no matter who's on the field. If you're not defending the seam routes, then either you're not teaching it right or you're not paying enough attention to it as players. But you start your season with, okay, this is the type of team we're going to be. And... This is how we're going to have to defend it. And I think offenses are way ahead of defenses in that regard because defenses are reacting to something they saw, and they'll sit up, and these coaches will sit up and look at film. I'm not just talking about giant coaches, but just defensive coaches will look at film, and they're going to study Mahomes. Then they're going to study Jackson, right? Um, 
and then they're just going to, you know, now they're going to try to defy, devise a scheme to stop them. But you don't establish any base fundamentals or any base defense to work from. You don't have a core. So every week it's evolving, which erodes technique, or you're teaching technique from one week to the next. And sometimes you don't. You know, you just say, okay, well, you're going to have to position yourself here, or we're going to play umbrella coverage, you know, which used to be three. Now it's like seven guys in an umbrella, you know. Um, and that's why, again, you look at some of the best offenses in football. Um, it's because they they kind of understand how they want to attack you. Um, defenses are in reactive mode instead of saying, okay, this is what we're going to be. We're going to be fundamentally sound in this, and this these techniques will take away a lot of different things. And I think you're seeing almost a rebirth <laughs> in the same way of the importance of the linebacker position sure. with all the read option stuff, which, by the way, isn't anything new. Mm-hmm. You and Bob saw Johnny Unitas doing it on, yeah. on old film earlier this year. All those crossing patterns, the, the rub routes and stuff like that, it's becoming more and more important to have linebackers, Carl, that can cover and know where to position themselves well, to cut those angles off. Yeah, right? the latter is even more important um, because play action is becoming more prevalent with these deep crossers and sure. knowing you know, if you get caught looking you can run to an area and know you're going to be in position to really make you know to really get yourself back into play um but yeah this is a lot of old joe gibbs offense this deep crossing routes off of play action um read option is read option um there's no reason why a quarterback shouldn't pay for it every time they run it whether they have success or not you impact the play once the variables change a little bit, right? Once he once he knows <laughs> if he runs down the line too far, um, he's going to get hit. Guess what? You can determine whether or not he's going to pitch the ball 100% of the time or 50% of the time. You hit him a few times, you know exactly what he's going to do when he comes down the line of scrimmage. You don't want to take those hits. So um, you've got to be able to have impacts on offenses like that. And I'll tell you a beautiful thing that um, I saw in the Super Bowl too is the way the Patriots play defense against the league's top-scoring offense or second-top-scoring offense was amazing. But what was more amazing is that the offensive team had no idea how to adjust. There was no adjustment at all. And it was the most simple adjustment, but nobody thought about it. They just kept doing the same thing over and over, right? If they're moving late, then go with hurry-up offense, right? Now you put the defense back on its heels. I would have been, and that would have gotten your quarterback back in rhythm too, right? But they were stuck on, okay, we don't have Gurley for this play or this series, so we're going to just, you know, I'm going to stay in your ear, I'm going to tell you what I see, and we can, hell, get in the huddle, get out, run, hurry up, and let's see what the Patriots do after that. You'll be able to get a play over the top on them. I'm pretty sure, or they'll be. They will have to show you what they're doing, and we'll know how to um, defend it. So it's the simple things, man. And sometimes football is played between your ears. You can be psyched out, or you can be the one. You know that that's playing that game equally um, against your opponent. So, um, but yeah, I just think that the fundamentals of this game have to return. And, you know, that's going to counterbalance 
some of the explosive offenses. And then, you know, some of the offenses that are not that good, you can tell they don't spend a lot of time on perfecting route running. Um, Players are not committed to getting better without their coaches. Um, So it goes both ways. Let's circle back. I know you're not one to have regrets, and not individually I'm talking now, Mm -hmm. but as a team. 87 to that next Super Bowl. Do you lament sometimes some missed opportunities by you guys to try to put another Super Bowl trophy in the case? 89 was a great opportunity for us, and we missed that. The strike year, um, which I think we were poised to, we were poised to win a Super Bowl. And had we not spotted the rest of the division for uh, four games, yeah, because those games weren't supposed to count, right? With the replacement players. Yeah, and then I think Washington ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. Yep. Um, 89, another dif- disappointing season, which we thought we would be able to go back then too. So, um, but nevertheless, we were, you know, we were competitive. We were still a top football team. And then the Ray Hanley era. How did it all come back together okay. in 90 to get it done? Because again, we were a team that a group of players, a core group that, and coaches that set standards, that set the bar high, that got pissed off um, by losing. And we just didn't like it. And we had to do some things. And we had some more players to come in. And it's a little different, I guess, now because you have, you know, free agency where guys got to come in and, and impact right away. But you still have a core, whether or not they're starters or not, they've got to be part of the culture. You know, they got to be the constants in today's game. Those core players, you know, the Zach Diossis of the world or any guy that's been on the roster two or three years, they've got to be part of the core of of what you're doing messaging-wise. So, but um, at that time, you know, missing it in 88 because, again, we just felt robbed. 89, we thought we were ready to – and we were. um, And that was the most disappointing – Probably the most disappointing year of my entire career. Did you guys really know you were better than the Rams in that game? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I just, we just did not, I don't know if we took them too lightly or they're just, they just stole some plays. Norv Turner was the master of stealing big plays during the course of games, and he stole one on us. And, hey, he went over the top. They they got it. But we, we knew we were better than them. We absolutely knew we were better than them. And then 90, just from you from a personal standpoint, you played through a lot of pain and, and, and an injury that year with your broken wrist, right? Yeah. Just talk about how that whole thing came about, and I don't think that's something that we would probably see oh, happen in the modern day it. NFL. No. Um, so we're playing Dallas, and I can't – I don't even remember what play it was, but I was chasing Emmett Smith, and I dove and missed him, and I was – so angry. I think I came down on my wrist and I got to the sideline and I looked at it and I was trying to move it around and it was just feeling weird. So I told Ronnie Barnes, I says, look, I need to get my wrist taped. I think I sprained it and I need to go back in. So he looked at it and then he called the doctor over and, and uh, Dr. Warren says, no, you can't go back in the game. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you got to dislocate the wrist because the little bulge was sticking out. The bones was, was you know, in the wrist, there's like a, 
like a puzzle of bones. So if something dislocates, it bulges. And so he's like, no, um, it can impact your entire hand if you know you do it. So I um, was out that game. I remember sitting in the tunnel waiting for an X-ray, and I was still waiting. And Jimmy Johnson came up to me and told me, you know, how much he respected me and what a hell of a player I was. That felt great. Um, but I was just like so disappointed. And so we go from that to, okay, we can get your wrists, the bones to reset. So I went into hospital for special surgery that night and I was in Chinese finger traps for about an hour until all the bones reset. Wow. Then they um, put percutaneous pins in and then they put a cast on it. And that cast was supposed to be off in like a week and I would be good to go. And somehow um, things got infected and I ended up having to play through pain in the Washington game and go in for a reconstructive surgery as soon as I got off the plane. So um, the surgery went as good as it, it could ever go. Andrew Weiland was the top hand specialist in, um, in, I don't know if he was in the world, but especially in America. They got him from Hopkins. He came down, did the surgery. We talked. He said, listen, you're probably going to miss the rest of the year. Um, and you're like, hell on, no. <laughs> yeah. He said, depending on, um, you know, how you rehab, it could take even another year. These oh, wow. Things, he's like, I've seen people, you know, these things can take a year or two to really get get back from. And I was just like, I don't even have that long. I, You know, so um, I just said, listen, once it's time you tell me it's time to rehab. I'm going to try to be as aggressive as I can to get back. And so six, eight weeks or something like that, I started rehabbing. And my goal was to get back for the playoffs. So that was about four months, five months. And um, so they cleared me for practice after I think four months, but it was in a cast. And I just was aggressively um, – working out my wrist, you know, after practice, before when I went home, and um, I ended up making it back into the, the um, back into the lineup the last week of the season throughout the playoffs and then the Super Bowl. Does it bother you? And I know you're not a guy that worries about individual awards, and you're in the Giants' ring of honor, which, which is a, mm -hmm. a great honor, and you're one of the top linebackers on the old 80s team as well that the NFL announced. But when people talk about the great linebackers, I don't understand why, but a lot of times people don't bring up Carl Banks. Do you think that's because you don't have the sacks, the raw numbers, and, and does that bother you at all? Nah, I, I, I honestly don't even think about it that much when people talk about the Hall of Fame. And if I was that guy, um, I would hire pro football focus. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> I would hire them to um, really chart my dominance, um, and you know, just to just to show exactly how good I was in you know a lot of areas on the football field. Uh, you know, passes against, 
runs against and things Setting like the that. Edge, that sort of thing. Yeah, people would be shocked um, because it's not. I, I'm, I did something that not a lot of people did or have done since. But it's just I just wasn't that guy because you know I kind of got over it when I was constantly um, overlooked for the Pro Bowl. And people were saying, well, you know, you can't have, you know, three linebackers from the same team when they constantly voted somebody else's three linebackers in. So, um, like I, the Saints. Yeah. <laughs> but they were great players. But I just, it just never, never bothered me. And, you know, when you are on a, on a team with Lawrence Taylor and Harry Carson, and you're playing at a level that's acceptable to them, then you know you pretty much got all the validation you need. And so I just never really worried about it. And even to this day, um, when the, my name's not mentioned among the best linebackers, it still doesn't bother me because those who played the game uh, or anybody that competed against me, they they knew, or anybody that coached against me. Um, they knew, so it just really didn't matter to me. You know, Monty Toomer was on last week, Carl, and he said the thing he's most proud of, not even the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. he's proud of having his name in that ring of honor because mm-hmm. he said the people that knew him best and knew him his whole career yeah. knew exactly the type of, not just player, but person he was sure. and how he represented the organization, and that's what got him up there. How important is being in that ring of honor to you? Oh, it's the ultimate. That is, you know, in essence your or my hall of fame i mean i would be um probably not i mean being in the hall of fame is being in the hall of fame but being in that ring of, ring of honor and it's a special place within your organization's history that tells you um how highly you were thought of by the way that you represented the organization um and as a player you know, the impact that you had. And so I I am thrilled. Um, and it's as important to me as if I were in the Hall of Fame. Let's talk about the current team very quickly, Carl. And let's mm-hmm. start. You have a personal relationship with Pat Shermer from your days at Michigan State. Yeah. Uh, what was he like at Michigan State? And, and just how does the type Hard-working of- guy. You know, I only had him for a year. You know, I'm a little bit older. Yep. But um, I stayed around the program every off season, so I got a chance to see a lot of him, and he was friend. Um, but he's a hardworking guy, scrappy guy, blue um, collar, right? Very blue collar, very focused. Because he was a bit undersized as a linebacker and then as a center, but was you know he's a technician, but a tough, you know, really tough guy. Um, so I'm not surprised at the type of program he's he's putting in place here. Um, what type of program is that, do you think? Because I think him and Gettleman share similar values and the types of players they want, right? H- how, how do you think well, their personalities reflect the type of roster they're trying to put together? Well, they want, number one, they want good personnel. Good personnel that's coachable. Um, but they understand that there are certain elements of the game that require certain type of players. They also know that it's a game that if you've got a quarterback, um, you need to understand that he is the most important position on the football field. 
They also know that the quarterback position historically has the, the highest rate of failure in terms of drafts. So if you have one that you can look at and say, okay, and we can take Eli Manning out of this, right? Let's just say they drafted a guy who's a middle-of-the-road type of quarterback, right? And they say, okay, he can do certain things. But if we got an offensive line, we can play action pass. He can do that, right? Which they did the second half of last year Correct. a lot. So um, we know he can't take the top off of a defense, but we've got two players that if we get them the ball in space, it's the same effect, right? Uh, but we got to be able to protect them. So what do we do? We got this quarterback. He can do some things for us. We got to get an offensive line. Uh, we got to get that fixed. We got to make sure we have uh, good pass catchers, and we got to be able to diversify our passing game. It's simple. Um, but when you have a guy, and I, and I still believe that Eli Manning is at another level than mediocre, you know what I mean? Um, but we're not under any illusions. He's 38. We know the end is coming, and they got to put a, a put, put a plan in place. But if you're looking at a crop coming out, and you don't think they can help you right away, why would you get rid of him? You can still draft a guy. There's no rule that says because you draft a guy, you got to play him right away. That's that's nonsense. Um, in this whole thing, well. They missed an opportunity on a quarterback last year because Saquon Barkley is only going to play for seven and a quarterback is for ten. Well, what if your quarterback sucks for his first three years? He plays ten, but he sucked for three and you got seven right out the box. You know, this guy hit the ground running and you can see his impact on the game. So it's the logic is so twisted sometimes. Um, and every one of those kids that were drafted last year all didn't finish the season. They all had injuries. Saquon Barkley finished the season. He finished the full season. Um, but back to my point on Eli, if you have, you know what you have, right? And you know that there is some pretty high-level productivity left in that quarterback, and you're not under the illusion of thinking that, hey, you know, he's not the he's not the shiny young twenty something year old toy, but this is what we got. And let's make sure we get the most out of this before we move on. Even if we do plan it this year, we need to make sure that this guy gives us our, our best chance. So let's make sure that we give him the tools necessary for success. Because those same tools will be necessary for the next guy's success, too. With the way the NFL is changing, a guy like Kyler Murray, his stature and the way he plays, can he succeed long-term in the NFL like a Russell Wilson has? Or is Russell Wilson a unique figurehead that you can't really compare somebody to? Well, Russell Wilson's unique in that he's the only one in this current era that's been able to do it. But Steve Young, they're sure. similar in mm-hmm. stature, right? Uh, Michael Vick, to a large degree, not with the, the level of success, but was able to play 10, 11, 12 years, I believe. Um, and it's funny, you mentioned Steve Young. I was watching Mike Holmgren's Football Life the other day. Sure. And Steve Young talked about how Holmgren 
would yell at him, why aren't you hitting that guy over the middle? And Steve Young would literally say, coach, I can't see him. And yeah. Steve Young had to teach himself to throw blind yeah. based on throwing where the guy should be open based on mm-hmm. the route. And to me, that's a that's a real tough thing to figure out as a quarterback, well, it right? it is. And we don't know what that's going to mean for Kyler Murray. Um, he should probably spend a lot of time um, studying Drew Brees. Um, should probably spend some time studying um, – Steve Young, but you know what it really comes down to is system and how he can manipulate a system that's going to benefit him in his lack of stature, if you will, uh, meaning that he's gonna, they're going to move him some. It's just it's impossible to think that he won't be moving because he has the ability to, but he's got the requisite skills as a quarterback to throw the football, how does he take that and turn it to his advantage? I think he can do that. Well, I hope to see him do that um, to a higher level of success than Lamar Jackson at this stage because Lamar Jackson is just that not just not that accomplished as a passer. So their offense is designed for him to be more of a a runner sure. who can you know get the ball out of his hands, whereas Murray's a guy who's an accomplished passer and they can do some things. But he'll understand, too, once they start to do things to benefit him, defenses will learn how to kind of choke that off, meaning RG3 and what Kyle Shanahan did with him early on, they gave him half the field to read. Well, then when defenders started – popping up in that half of the field where all the receivers are and pressuring on the backside, it started to, you know, it started to wear on him a little bit. So um, he's going to be able to, he's going to have to be able to make some of those blind throws, but he's going to have to be really good at what he does with the system so that he can then manipulate it. So people can think he's going to do something and be able to make throws over uh, or anticipation throws. Before we hit the defense, real quickly on the offense, Carl, um, you kind of talked about what how you picture this offense looking this year. Mm-hmm. Play action, use the receivers, but I think the end of last year gave a blueprint. Sure. And how do you think this team consistently moves the ball without number 13, that true downfield deep threat that teams have to commit to, maybe sometimes three guys to down the field? Well, that's the difference. Um Now you can diversify your offense. You've got a tight end who's now catching the football and can get behind most people. Sterling Shepard can get behind most people. Golden Tate is a guy who is one of the best run-after-catch guys, too. So, yeah, I mean, it takes three, sometimes four guys to replace the production of one. But the benefit to that is there's more than one guy now. So your quarterback doesn't have to um, focus on getting the ball to your best receiver, who who warrants it, let's be honest. But now the quarterback can say, I, I have options available to me and not just the one guy um, that's going to be double and triple covered sometimes. I can now really go through reads without a, a focus on, on you know, just finding a little area to get the ball into 13, and he'll make a, a great play for us. Defensively, 
Giants have 12 picks in the draft. I think we all believe that a lot of those picks will be dedicated to the defensive side of the ball as they try to figure out what they're going to be. Where do you think this defense needs to improve the most and add in order to take that next step next year in James Betcher's second year? Well, I think they've started um, two new safeties. Uh, one kid who's extremely athletic, young. Uh, another kid who's a high-volume tackler who's going to help um, Peppers mature qu- pretty rapidly because uh, Bethea has been a highly productive player in the league for a long time, high-volume tackler. But what he can teach young Peppers based on his experience is going to be great. Um, you need another cornerback. You need another bass rusher or two. Um, another linebacker. And you need some guys to really start to – and that's a lot, what I just said. It's a lot of positions. Yeah, and you need guys to kind of grow. You know, Lorenzo Carter has got great That's a promise. big one. That's a big one. If he takes the next step, you check that box. Now you got the two inside guys and him. You know, um, but it's a lot. When you can name five or six areas that you got to improve out of 11, it kind of tells you exactly why you're where you are, you know. And, you know, I always, when I think about Olivier Vernon's tenure here, he was a victim of circumstance as much as he was, you know, impacted by injuries and his lack of production. When I say victim of circumstance, he was the guy who was always almost there, right? The reason he was always almost there is because there was nobody on the other side that can either flush a quarterback or get him to step up um, to compliment him. Or they couldn't cover long enough in the back end to make the quarterback hold the ball. Correct. So, I mean, he was just a good player on a bad defense who couldn't make a difference, and that happens quite a bit. Um because if he can get close, then somebody else should be getting sacks, you know, and that's, that didn't happen. Or if somebody else getting close, he's right there too getting a sack. And so it's unfortunate, but they're going to have to get two good edge rushers too and guys who can blitz. Now, Carl, you've been as big of a success off the field since you retired as you are on. Uh, just tell everybody how you got into the fashion business, what you're doing now, and just kind of – what what drives you every day? Because I see you. You come here. You're doing broadcast stuff. You're on the phone. You're making deals. You're doing a little bit of everything all at the same time. Just kind of how you evolved into to what you've become off the field. Well, I, I started my company, G3 Sports, by Carl Banks. Um, my second year in the NFL. So 85, really? Yeah. Wow. 85. And um, I saw an opportunity to make big and tall clothing. And... Uh, I started doing some outerwear. Um, at the time, I was wearing the starter brand. They were the online, I mean online, on-field. Um, there was no online back in 85. Right, exactly. <laughs> they were the on-field uh, supplier. And I fell in love with that brand, and I became one of their spokespeople. And um, we fast-forward to today. It's it's one of the brands in my portfolio now. Um, we do all major sports and colleges, uh, everything from swimwear to jackets, T-shirts, sweatsuits, um, every sport, every team, uh, about 150 colleges I do. Wow. 
And we do ladies. I also do Alyssa Milano's collection. I do Jimmy Fallon's collection. Um, what else do we do? Uh, I think that's... It's a lot. All, and we were the on-field um, uniform supplier for the AAF. That's now defunct, but hopefully they can get some things worked out. You got to um, get Vince McMahon a call, I think, Carl. <laughs> well, yeah. Vince is a guy who's... Uh, a little self-sufficient, though. He he does a lot of his own products, so he's a great model to to watch, too, if you're an entrepreneur. I've uh, studied Vince quite a bit. Um, yeah, so, you know, those are some of the few projects I have going on that keep me busy, and um, what drives me is the same thing that drove me as a football player, you know, success and um, sustainable success good fundamentals for um, building a business or dealing with adversity. And, you know, that's what I take into my business. You know, I always, you know, every every once in a while I'll drop Bill Belichick a note and, and thank him for, um, you know, instilling some of the principles of, uh, of, of sound fundamentals because I apply them, you know, in what I do now. And I think your biggest accomplishment is putting up with Bob Papa, myself, and Lance Meadow. And you know Dave Betancourt and all the guys well, in the Giants radio broadcast team, and, and know, we haven't fortunate exactly, yet. We're trying. It's not exactly putting up with, you know. <laughs> um, well, as as Bob will tell you, he got me really going in this business. We've been we've known each other for a very long time. He actually got me to do uh, a boxing match with him once. So um, the level of comfort that we have with each other. Um, is something I'm very grateful for because, you know, we've known each other and worked together for so long, and he's been a very big advocate, and he gives me great feedback. Um, and as for the rest of you guys, you know, as long as you don't spill chili in the binoculars, we're going to be okay. We'll try to avoid that, Carl. You know, when we're in the booth and we're yep. looking out and I need the binoculars and I go to put them up and there's chili in it. It could get sloppy in there it sometimes. It could get sloppy. <laughs> Inside joke, folks. And it's funny. It's <laughs> oh, funny. it's funny. <laughs> um, but, no, I, I enjoy the team, period, man. I think that's what, what makes us one of the best uh, broadcast teams in the sport is that you know we bring a level of passion to what we do but we also bring a level of of reality um that we know that the fans need honesty mm. and um especially when it comes to a radio broadcast we're the eyes to their ears and if we can't explain to them what's going on from play to play then we're cheating them you know, um, and a great credit, by the way, to the Marin Tish families who want yeah. you guys to be honest and fair. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's fine. We can be fair and we can be honest without being personal. You know, um, but I think our fans deserve that. And you know, and then here's just one more thing. You know, for the the fan base, I get it that you're pissed off right now, and you should be. You know what I mean? I um, if the team hasn't given you any reason to be optimistic it's okay you know um and i think going back to when i played 
Harry Carson used to all because he spent time during an era like this as a player. And he used to come in the huddle and he used to say, you hear that? They're booing our asses. You know why? Because we ain't doing nothing to keep them happy. We're not giving them anything to cheer about. So it's okay. Um, and it's up to the team to give the fans the reason to be enthusiastic. And I believe sincerely that they have a plan. I believe in the people that's putting that plan in place. But for fans, you don't have that luxury. So it's about show and prove. So I get it. Um, but you got one of two choices. Hang in there or stop watching, you know. And for the Giants, I'm sure they want you to hang in there. Uh, better days are coming sooner than later. But I get it, man. You go through it enough times and you kind of get jaded about decisions. You you question every decision. You you look at every move as, you know, something idiotic or you say, oh, you know, they're just doing this because, you know, it's just some wild theory, but that's what losing continuously breeds. So you got to be back to the winning ways. That's the responsibility of the players and ultimately the organization. That's why Dave Gettleman made changes in his personnel staff, right? He didn't come out and tell you on how athletic a guy projects and that he could be the next this. He's going to tell you what it is, and if it isn't, he moves on from it. He doesn't extend scholarships to guys so that you don't. he doesn't look bad in the process. He admits it, and he moves on. Which and, is something Bill Belichick does too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Many, many organizations do it instead of just having a guy as a symbol of ineptitude just constantly hanging around and hoping fans forget he's on the roster when you actually drafted him to be the next offensive lineman since, you know, Sean O'Hara and Dave Dill left and guys just kind of hanging around and never makes it to the football field. So um, that's, you know, where you are right now. You've got to have some confidence. You want a cookie? <laughs> um, but it's it's – you you got to have a management team and personnel team that hold themselves in terms of evaluation at a very high standard. They you you're not afforded the luxury of projecting beyond what you see on film. Now, if you see something good on film, you can project upside. Sure. If you don't see it. Don't project it's ever going to come. Not in today's NFL. You don't practice enough. Coaches don't spend enough time with players. So if that player doesn't come with some tools in his toolbox, you can pretty much rest assured that he ain't going to develop at a certain level. And then he's just going to be the guy that almost got there and that you got people wishing uh, for more from. And, you know, you look at Eric Flowers was a top ten pick. Um, the bad habits he had in college, they continued. Never got better. His athleticism stayed the same, but it never it never materialized into um, a complete player, as opposed to a guy like Orlando Pace, 
who was a dominant player in college. And I don't know where – Pace wasn't the second pick, was he? Was he the number one number pick? Number one pick in 1997. Yeah. But when you're picking top five to ten – you got to know that that guy brings something to the table. If he doesn't, then don't waste that pick on a guy like that, projecting that he's going to be something else. I mean, and that's that's very high, but where he's now in the Hall of Fame. But when you get an offensive lineman in the top 10, you better rest assured that he's going to be pretty darn good. And if not, then maybe he, you get him in the second round and you're not wasting draft capital on him. But. And this is the final thing, Carl. And I think you made a great point. And I think fans see a lot of losing that's happened since, sure. the, since the last Super Bowl, right? Mm-hmm. And I think people see it as a straight line. But there's been two coaching changes. Just sure. only a year and change ago did they change the general manager. Mm-hmm. He completely changed the structure of the front office. Sure. And I know people are like, but Dave Gettleman was here before. It's just a continuation. It's not. There's been a lot of changes well, here in the last year plus, and I think there should be some level of patience to let Dave Gettleman and Pat Shermer put together what sure. they want because it can't be done overnight. Right, and um, if you go back to the Giants' first Super Bowl, it was Dave Gettleman behind the scenes constructing that. He was the pro personnel roster. director. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the the one they lost, I said the first the Super Bowl, uh, po- first Super Bowl post-1990. Correct. It's, which was the third Super Bowl, um, the changes he made there to get that team into a Super Bowl, uh, getting Kerry Collins some more offensive linemen, um, that was Dave Gettleman. So, yeah, he's been here before, and, yeah, he was part of constructing. He added Antonio Pierce, added Sam Madison. Yeah. I mean, those are big-time players on yeah. that team. And then the second one, Antro Roll. Yeah. Chris Canty, Michael Boley, those are big, important pieces. Yeah, that's that's Dave Gettleman. So when you say he's been here before, he's not part of the same old newer regime. He's part of a winning regime. He understands that he gets it. And but again, you know, we can we can encourage fans to we're blue in the face, but you know, results are what matter of to course. a fan base. And you know, you can preach patience, and I think deep down, most of them are because they still show up to complain. You know what I mean? So I'm sure they'd show up to cheer as well. Carl, it's a perfect place to end it. We Thank appreciate you, man. it. I appreciate it. Carl Banks, make sure you go to your favorite podcast platform. You can download the Giants Huddle, the brand new Giants podcast. You can also listen to it on Giants.com. For Carl Banks, I'm John Schmelk. We'll see you next week, everybody. Have a good one. Adios.